I just want to, just quickly, I want to jump into the scripture this morning because we have a short time. But I I do want to say thank you. Um, You know, it was love at first sight. The first time I came and saw you, I don't know how many years ago, like five years ago, maybe six. And um, I would tell people all over, you, you, if you go to Seoul, you've got to get to that, that young adult group that's hungry for God. That, um, you, you know, they're so easily fascinated at the things of the Lord and open to him. And, and then three years ago coming and spending more time with you. And, and now it's such an honor to get to come and see you again. And to I'm really blessed by um, your leaders. Uh, I mean, Susie and Caleb and John and all the leaders, David, all the leaders are just quality people quality, sincere, uh, compassionate. Um, Susie is such a stateswoman, isn't she? She's a statesman, you know, just, just love it. Just, just such a, such a gift. Caleb is, um, (laughs) no, actually Caleb is sharp. He can be a statesman on any stage. He is sharp and he is, has the right combination of playfulness and sobriety, hunger and peace. And he's a true father. So you're safe with him, right? What he did last night in vulnerability, built more equity with uh, this group of people than any powerful preaching could ever do or move of the spirit. It's the, it's the openness, the vulnerability. And to have a man of faith who's vulnerable is a rare package. So count yourself really, really blessed uh, to have a leader like that in your midst. And I, but it's not just your leaders. Um, you know, I like to preach and look at people. I don't, I don't like that look at the back wall thing. I'm not preaching to a wall. I'm talking to the saints. The one Jesus, the ones that Jesus died for. And so I've really enjoyed your faces. You know, I've really enjoyed it um, because you you delight in him. You know, I even enjoy your faces when I say something and you give me that Korean hard stare like. Like what? I enjoy it. You know, I was saying to it's noble, right? You know, I, I was so enjoyed him sitting Right there last night. I just enjoyed his face. And, um, and I wonder uh, how God enjoys us all the time. And you have a right combination of, you know, what I call that incarnational reality of Jesus, of the divine and the human. And you can laugh at yourself. And at the same time, you can travail for an hour and a half last night. And so I, I'm encouraged uh, about your future and it's an honor to be here and I am it was a delight for me sleep or no sleep that doesn't matter if you're home sometimes you sleep sometimes you don't so it's kind of the same right <laughs> so so I'm just glad it, it was really worth it and I look forward to many years to come so um, I, I don't I could um, give us some insight about last night but I'm not I'll just let you process it and the Lord is kind and good, and he'll give you more insight as you do. And um, 
uh, I'm encouraged today. I want to jump right back in the Bible. Um, we, we began with, uh, you know, he knows us. He not only knows us, he secures us. He not only secures us, he speaks to us our identity and the divine purpose as those made in his image, fearfully and wonderfully made. And that divine knowledge and security and purpose thrust us into the cry for wholehearted love. Search me and try me. Remove everything on the outside. Remove everything on the inside. If you're like this, then I say yes to you. That, that's, that's the gospel. We love him because he first loved us. You know. And so, uh, and then the, the next session, we talked about what it means to, to know him as father in, in another way. And that intimacy doesn't begin with us. It begins with him. You know, therefore, the question for intimacy and growth in prayer or intimacy, the disciplines, is not what should I do, but it's a question of who. Who am I doing it towards or with? And so we begin to talk about him, that you've been invited into a preexistent, eternal intimacy between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and looking at intimacy through a Trinitarian framework. And we honestly could spend 14 weeks on that subject. But we can't because it's a retreat. But I introduced the, the idea of what it means to have intimacy with the Trinitarian God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And how today, if you had a strict monotheism, you might know God as sovereign. You might know God as powerful. But you're not guaranteed he's love. He can control. He can make you submit. He can judge and weigh your eternity. And hold you in the palm of his hand and decide your future. But because God existed eternally as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And communion and love. His first movement of his heart is love. We know he's love. We in the Bible gives us not only the revelation of God, but the revelation of God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so the first movement of God's heart is love. And so we looked at God the Father as love. And that little bit of the relationship of Jesus with the Father. So then last night was last night. Wasn't what I expected, wasn't what I was going to preach on, but the Father wanted to talk to his kids and say, you know what? Life is complex. It's complex. And sometimes in the complexity, or I'll say it every time in the midst of the complexity, God brings forth a people and there's a season of rapid increase. That initial anointing that births a move, there's a rapid season of increase and then the Lord in his kindness, because he wants to give us eternal rewards, not just earthly impact. Begins to unveil our deficiencies. And that leads us to the cross. Which leads us to a death. Which invites us into a resurrection. And puts us in an upper room together as family. The disciples weren't family for three and a half years. They had a bitter dispute over who's the greatest. Their deficiencies would all show. Everyone 
was exposed. That's the good news, though, isn't it? God exposes all of our deficiencies, so it's an equal opportunity or employer. And all of us get exposed, and therefore we have grace with one another. But he does that in the midst of a people. And then we go through the death season. And it may be three days or five years or ten years or like Joseph and his brothers many decades where he puts us back in a room and asks us to pray together and to be family again. And as the loving Heavenly Father, he's interested that we don't short circuit that process because there's another baptism coming. That if we'll submit to the dying and the resurrection, the Holy Spirit will come again and do a great work, a greater work than the first three and a half years of revival. And so God was inviting you as a people that in the midst of the complexity and pain, don't close your heart up. Don't take the easy route. Discern between what he birthed in your midst and human deficiency. And don't throw out that golden seed that God planted in those early days. And don't let the witchcraft robbed you of seeing the fruit from your past and the hope for your future. And offer up your pain. Offer up the trauma. Offer up the good, the bad, and the ugly in intercession. And watch what God does as you meet as a family and do that together. So we got a little picture of that last night. Today, I don't know how this fits in, but I want to talk to you about the beauty realm. The beauty realm. I want to talk to you about the beautiful God and his 24 elders. You say, Alan, what does that have to do with anything? I don't know, but I just want to talk to you. Not, not only your future in soul, I want to talk to you about your eternal future where this thing's ultimately going for everybody. <laughs> and so open up your Bibles to Revelation 4. You've seen this passage a lot, but I hope we will see it a little bit better today. Are you with me? You people seem really quiet today. You got to start talking to me. I'm not in Europe. I'm not in Germany where they don't talk back to you. I need you to talk to me, people. Let me know you're awake. You're with me. Okay? All right? Okay, Revelation 4. Revelation 4. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately... I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunders, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. 
Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature like, had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around it within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will. They exist and were created. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will remain forever. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Father, send Holy Spirit. Send the teacher. Send the comforter. He's the teacher. We are the students. We want to learn from him. And so take weak words and match them with your power. Match them with your power. Show us great and mighty things in Jesus name. Amen. Well, I want to look at this. And as I do, I'm going to take you on a, a little thought journey. And I want to look at some things and um, some ideas you've heard a thousand times. And some you may hear for the first time. But here's the point is is this is your future. This is where you're going. And so before we look at it, the first thing I want to do is set the context for you. And the first thing for us to consider before we jump into Revelation 4 is who's writing this. Now, this isn't a strict Bible study. I'm not, I'm not teaching a class per se. But you have to know who's writing this in order to get the full impact of what's going on. The author here, according to tradition, is none other than John. And so we have John, or as the Apostle John, one of the twelve, the brother of James, one of the sons of Zebedee, who likes to call himself the beloved disciple. So we have the beloved disciple. He was nicknamed by Jesus as one of the sons of thunder. And so whether that was about his preaching or his anger problem, we don't know. But we have good, we have, we have good precedence that he wanted to call down fire and kill a whole village. So it might have been that he was a warrior. <laughs> you know, he was a serious man. Oh, how do you say it? He was a man's man, you know, uh, so to speak. But he was also one of the three pillars and he witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain when his face shone like the sun and he was transfigured. So this, this, my point is, he's an experienced apostle here. He's got a lot, he's got a big pedigree. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was found sitting next to Jesus, leaning his head on his breast. And so he had an intimacy that when Jesus said, someone is going to betray me, one of you, Peter was afraid to ask Jesus and Peter got John to ask Jesus because he knew 
Jesus would tell John anything. And so John leans against Jesus and asked him, and Jesus tells him. It's the one whom after I dip, give it to, he's the one. And so this is the disciple who was leaning on Jesus' breast. Jesus shared mysteries with him. And then he would follow Jesus not only to Ananias' house where he would be have a mock trial at night before the Sanhedrin, he would be the only disciple that we know of to witness the crucifixion, and he would be the one whom Jesus would entrust with his mom. So this is a very special person writing this book who's well acquainted with Jesus. I mean, by this time, he's an elderly man, and how many stories had he heard from Mary about Jesus? So outside of Mary, he knows more about Jesus than any other man who has ever lived. Well, any other man he is knows it more than any other man. But Mary, I would say, trumps him to know a little bit more about her son. But he knows more. And at the end of his life, he would be known not as a son of thunder, but as an apostle of love. Which means that the area of our greatest warfare... God turns into the area of our greatest inheritance. Uh, How many people do you know who were once perverse men who are the most holy of all men you know now today? My brother-in-law, Ed Hackett, Laura Hackett Park's uh, father, uh, he was a womanizer and used to drink in a bar in Indiana called um, uh, Lucifer's House. He said, you wouldn't have wanted me anywhere near your daughters. I was a horrible man. I did horrible things. But guess what? The Lord radically saves him. And he has three daughters. He becomes the father of three daughters. And he's the most holy man I've ever met. Hands down. So the area of his warfare... Frailty becomes the area of his testimony and inheritance. And God takes a man who wants to kill everybody who he wants to kill a village that was going to make them walk probably a quarter mile longer. (laughs) Can you imagine wanting to kill everyone because you got to walk a quarter of a mile longer (laughs) and turns him into the apostle of love by the end of his life. They prop him up and he just says, love Jesus, love one another and, and the Lord will move. So that's who we're talking about. So as we look at this, we understand also at this point when he writes this, he's on the island of Patmos. Now, how did he get there? Some of you may know, some of you may not. But but in his elderly age, John was twice uh, tried to be executed by the authorities. Now, this is a horrible type of execution. But two times they tried to boil him in oil alive. I mean, that's the worst thing I can imagine. I mean, I guess being filleted alive, your skin filleted is tough too. That, that's tough. But, but boiled alive to me, I, I, I can't imagine that. I mean, but, but they try twice and both times it doesn't work. He won't boil. Can you imagine walking up to the oil? I mean, you're like, I mean, it's terrifying, you know, but once you're in the oil and it's not boiling you, that's kind of cool. Can you imagine that? Come out. No, you come in. 
The oil's fine. Come on in. (laughs) They try it twice and they give up because now it works against him because every time they try to kill him, his notoriety becomes more and the fame of Christ grows. So they, what do they do? They stick him on the island of Patmos and make him a labor, a slave labor in the bottom of a mine on Patmos. But even there, in his imprisonment, he's in the bottom of a mine, but he's on the, in the spirit on the Lord's day. And suddenly he hears a voice. Now let's look at this verse one, because this is going to set the context as we begin. On that day, this particular day in that mine on Patmos, John's going to receive a new revelation of Jesus. Now, remember who we're talking to, the one who probably knows more about Jesus than anyone who's alive at this time. Mary's most likely passed away. And at this point, the book of Revelation begins with this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Who did God give it to? Who's the him? No, look at your H. Look at him. Is that capitalized in your Bible? Is your Korean Bible authoritative? It's a joke. That was a joke. That was wrong to say. Look at this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. John doesn't have servants. It's Jesus. God the Father gave Jesus the permission To show the church a new revelation about himself. You have to see that. Now a couple things I need to note to you here. Number one is this is not the book of revelations. This is not primarily about the seals, trumpets and bowls. This is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't call it the book of revelations. It's not. It's one revelation. It is a revelation of Jesus's person and work in bringing to culmination and consummation all of human history in the plan of redemption. It's putting Jesus on display. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and it's very importantly that we understand that. It's the unveiling of Jesus's personhood and his power to accomplish What he started on the cross to bring it to fulfillment. It's very similar to what the gospels show us about Jesus's first, his nature and his work and his first coming. That gives us great confidence in our justification. This book is designed to reveal the glory and the power and the work and the nature of Jesus in pulling off the second coming and Bringing to consummation God's redemptive plan. In other words, if you read the Gospels and fall in love with Jesus in his first coming, this is meant to give you a revelation of Jesus that would cause you to fall in love with his second coming. 
And up to this point, we only have fragments of Jesus' teaching, like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul tells us about the Antichrist and Jesus coming to destroy him in brilliant light. We only have a chapter called All of That Discourse of Jesus talking on the subject. And so God gives, God the Father gives Jesus permission to give John the revelation of his second coming glory. I just love that. I, I, I don't know what it, how it went down, but I just picture John's discouraged in the bottom of a mine. The, where the church is at is quite precarious. We're going to find out the mighty church of Ephesus has lost its first love. Thyatira and, and Sardis are in bad shape. I mean, there, there's some, there's some bad stuff going on. The church looks precarious, the future. And I can just see Jesus saying to the father, can I show John a new face of mine? Can I encourage the church? What's the best way to encourage the church? Show him Jesus. And the father gives Jesus the revelation of himself to give to the church. Look what happens. Now, what does John do at this revelation? This is what I love. Look look here. Go down with me. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. There he is showing up behind us again. He always shows up behind us, so we'll turn around and look. He loves us to turn around and look. (laughs) Saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia Minor, to Ephesus, Smyrna, da-da-da-da-da. Look what it says. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in furnace. His voice was the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And so Jesus shows up in a new way that John has never seen. And what is the one guy's response who knows the most about Jesus who's intimate with Jesus, who can lay on his breast and ask him mysteries and receive them, who's called the apostle of love, <laughs> who knows more about his Jesus' mom and about Jesus and all the stories. What is the response of the guy who knows the most of Jesus, who can make a case is the most intimate with Jesus, his beloved disciple, Suddenly, he sees Jesus' new face, and what does he do? He falls down like a dead man before his power and glory. This is amazing. You can almost see Jesus just smile. John, you've never seen me like this before. (laughs) And it was an intimate response because look what he does. Jesus doesn't just let him curl up in the fetal position for a couple hours and then, you know, <laughs> then, then say, get up, but get up carefully. You could die today, John. You know, this is my glory. Look, look what he does. And when I saw him, I felt his feet 
as dead. But what does it say? What's the next word? I fell at his feet as dead. But. But he laid his right hand on me saying. Do not be afraid. John. My glory is not to make you afraid. I'm not appearing in this glory to make you afraid. It's to cause you to be fascinated. To be undone. This glory is not going to be used against you, John. (laughs) I love that. God's glory isn't used against us. It's to our good. Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Get up, John. I want to show you something. Then we find out that Jesus is in the midst of his church. Isn't that good news? We get the revelation that Jesus is walking among the lampstands. He's with us. Good, the bad, and the ugly. He's there. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is the end of Mark 16. And we could argue of whether or not that should be included in the canon. Those last eight verses. But the last verse, it says that the disciples went out preaching the gospel. And Jesus went with them. Oh, I love that. (laughs) He went with them. He's in the midst of the lampstands. He's among us, encouraging us, exhorting us, helping us, giving us promises if we overcome. Coaching us all the way, helping us. He's why? Because he's building his church, right? He loves his church. He loves us. It's like when you look at a part of the church and you go, "Ugh." You know, I spend most of my time as a dad convincing my sons to see each other correctly. Samuel comes up and goes, Joshua annoys me. I go, Samuel, he's your gift. He's your gift. Joshua's your gift. He's rubbing you wrong because he hit your deliverance is in his mouth. And then Jonathan comes up and goes, Samuel annoys me. Da, 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 dad, you've got to do something. Oh, no. Samuel's your gift. You've got to see him rightly. And they both come to me about Jonathan and go, dad, you've got to do something. I go, no, he's your gift. You're going to see him rightly one day. And the things that aggravate you and annoy you and you're discouraged about are going to be the very things you applaud him for in the coming days. Just give it time. See one another. Jesus wants us to see one another differently. He wants to let us know he's not only walking among Philadelphia. He's walking among Sardis. Thyatira. He's in the good, the bad, and the ugly. He said he would never leave us or forsake us. He's with us. He's the one building his church, walking among the lampstands. And now we find, that brings us to chapter 4. And now we find that Jesus, now that he's revealed himself in his glory to John, he's helped John recover so that John can write the rest of what's going to happen. He then wants to let us know before he shows us anything of the future that he doesn't use his glory to hurt us. He's walking in the midst of the church to help us. He's using his glory to build us up. 
to deliver us, to love us, to give us beautiful promises. He's amazing. The Bible, I told you, you and I get this 42 says he'll never grow discouraged till he accomplishes justice in the earth. You and I get discouraged about a lot. Jesus never gets discouraged. He just keeps serving. He just keeps loving. He just keeps so confident in himself that he's going to win the day and that the Father's going to give him what he promised. Now, what we're going to find out is now that he showed us in the, he's in the midst of the church, in, in chapter 6 through 19, he's going to reveal the Father's plan to bring about the climax of human history and to give the Son all the kingdoms of the earth. What Jesus began on the cross and accomplished at the cross is going to actually be wrought out in human history and is actually going to play out. It's not just ethereal. He's not always going to be unseen at the right hand of the Father. One day he's coming to split the sky and remove everything that hinders love and to fill the earth with the Father's glorious light and power and love and goodness. And the peoples of the earth will say, long live you King Jesus, according to Psalm 72. That's where it's going. And 6 to 19 is the blueprint on how he's going to begin to reduce the gods of the earth to nothing. So that the peoples can worship him from every shore. That's 6 through 19. But before he takes us to the blueprint, he wants to introduce us to the one who drew up the blueprint. Because the blueprint's just a reflection of the one who wrote it. So before you go to the blueprint, get all excited about the plan, Jesus wants to introduce you to the author of the plan, the Father of glory. The father of light. The father of the Lord Jesus. And so this is why we call chapters 4 and 5. Affectionately we call it what? The beauty realm. (laughs) It just means the beautiful God on his throne. It's the beauty realm. Now as we look at this, I want you to notice a few things. Are you with me? Now, don't get tired on me. Don't check out on me. I need you right here. This is the important part. We're about to talk about God. Okay? So this will be the best part is talking about Him. So Revelation 4, Lord, help us. You're adults too. I don't know what your your etiquette is here. But for me, I don't mind if you ever get up, have to use the restroom, or whatever you need to do to stay awake. If that means you pace, you do whatever you want. You're adults. Okay? So engagement with the word is the top value, not etiquette of you sit still and pretend like you're listening. Okay? All right? And yawns really discourage me. So just help me. And so uh, so Revelation uh, chapter 4, I want you to notice something. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the, and the first voice which I heard like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things. Now, this is interesting. What was the first voice that sounded like a trumpet? Who was that? Jesus. 
And so we find out that the one who invites him up there, the voice that opens a door in heaven for him to go up there is none other than Jesus. Now, now this is interesting right here because it's Jesus, it's Jesus's voice. Or I say it, it's Jesus's person and work that opens up heaven to us. There's no other voice under heaven and earth by which men and women can be saved. He's the one mediator between God and man. And it's his voice that says, come up here. Oh, this is amazing. There's no entrance into the throne room of God outside of Christ. You need to settle it. You didn't get there because of your works. He got you there. His voice said, come up and the door opened and you went up. <laughs> you should give thanks for this. Jesus has given you access to the great throne room of the Almighty. If that was enough, how many of you, how many of you have been to like one of the palaces? I just went to Europe for five weeks. I walked through like the palace in Salzburg and Vienna and, and Paris, and I'm just like, and I got access. And I was thinking to myself, I want access to like the secret rooms <laughs> that you can't pay to get in. I, I want to go in there. Beloved, do you realize? If you got access one time, you would be privileged. Like just one time you walk through the throne room of God Almighty. You would be a blessed man. Whether you ever made it there for eternity or not, you would be blessed that you just <laughs> walk through. I remember I had a youth. I was youth director and one of my youth um, about 15 years later came to me. I was in, in Cocoa Beach where NASA is. And he sees me speaking at a church and he comes up and he goes, Alan, you remember me? I was that snot no 16-year-old that liked to wrestle with you. And da 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 He goes, yeah, I went through the Air Force Academy. I'm the top lieutenant. I'm all, I am in charge of all of NASA. On Cape Canaveral, he goes, are you going to be here tomorrow? I'll take you in all the underground caverns where nobody's allowed to go. I was flying out that night. I was like, I, I was like, say it. Dang. Dang. Ah. But there's something in us that wants to go through secret doors and end up in amazing places. It's not just a guy thing. It's a, it's a human thing. We want to explore things. What if you, just if you had access one time. But here's the good news. Because of Jesus and his voice, his person and work. The throne room, you don't just have access to it. It's your home. You don't just have access to the throne. You're a citizen of the throne. <laughs> This means that it's your living room. Jesus didn't say come up here because you get to visit. He's moved you in. If we truly understood what I just said, you would run out of this room. And you would run around this building screaming your head off for what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. This is both God's throne 
and your home. You've been adopted into the family of God where God is your father and Jesus is your brother and the spirit dwelling in you. What does the voice lead John to see? Look, what, what does the joy voice lead him to see? Come up here. What's the first thing? Immediately I was in the spirit and what? Behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. Now, what's unusual about this is not that it says the throne. It's that it doesn't describe the throne at all. Have you ever read in the Bible what it says about Solomon's throne? There are lions, there's steps, there's moving parts, there's gold and bronze. and I mean, it's like this whole section on Solomon's throne. But John gets called up to heaven. Can you imagine how ornate... God's throne is, if Solomon's throne was commanded to be that ornate, can you imagine how ornate God's throne is? And yet, when he goes up and the voice calls him up, and he sees the throne, he says nothing about the throne. Not one description, the same with Isaiah. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne, and he says nothing about the throne. <laughs> Why? Because it's not the throne that's so fascinating. Beloved, the earth is filled with thrones that are more ornate and beautiful than the men and women who sit on them. <laughs> the thrones that they sit on are more ornate and beautiful and, and magnanimous than the actual men and women. Not so in this case. John doesn't even say anything about the throne. He doesn't care about the throne. He sees the ornate throne, but it's nothing compared to the one who sits on the throne. He hardly even mentions the royal seat. He goes right to the one who's shining in glory. Because the one who sits on that throne, you want to know what's, you want to know what's magnanimous about heaven's throne? The one who sits on it. Love it. Let me set before you. You want to know what makes heaven amazing? God. <laughs> if he's not there, you don't want to go. It's him. You know what it says about the new Jerusalem? It says there's no temple in the new Jerusalem. Think about this for a moment with me. What are temples? Temples are places that are set apart. For that particular deity to manifest itself with more potency. Works with demonic temples as well as godly temples. That deity manifests. Right? But you know why the new Jerusalem has no, has no temple? It says God and the Lamb are the temple. Which means this. There's no need for a temple in heaven. Because there's not one defiling thing there. Which means every little millimeter of the new Jerusalem. God's glory manifests in pure potency and power. Every square inch is saturated with his glory. 
<laughs> it's not like if I could get to that part of heaven. Every part of heaven is filled with his glory. Now let's look at this. This is, this is about to get fun. He sees the one sitting on the throne. His eyes hardly notice the royal seat. His gaze is drawn to the beautiful display of splendor emanating from the one who rules. <laughs> imagine, imagine. I wish we knew the time sequence. Like it just flows. But what was it like? It was probably, I saw the one seated on the throne and like four days later. <laughs> You know, Moses, when he saw the manifest presence of God on the mountain, he didn't eat or drink for 40 days and lived. I just picture Moses for 40 days. My mentor, who was part of the Asbury Revival in 1970, said when the Lord's presence came in the room, there were many of them that didn't move for three days and had their hands up. Now, if that's exaggerated, Still pretty powerful. What if it was just two days? <laughs> you ever try to hold your hands up for more than 20 minutes? That's exaggerated. It was probably only one day. <laughs> now let's look at it. Oh, I just lost it. So he looks and what is the first thing John is going to notice. He's going to notice two things right away about God. One is that he's light. And the other is that he's love. The glory that's emanating off of the father. Is not just a light show. It displays a quality of the father. His nature is emanating. You, you understand it's not a garb he f puts on. I'm putting on my, my Jasper stone garment today. I'm going to shine with translucent light. And then tomorrow he goes, well, I, I, I like red. So I'm going to put on my Sardis garment. You know, and then yellow and then whatever. But the point is, is that it's not a garment he puts on. It's a color and light that emanates from his being. For God is light. He is light. And the very first characteristic is that he shines like a jasper stone. Which is translucent light. Now, what does this say? Now, the Apostle John is going to tell us the very first thing he says in his letter that he writes. First John, he'll write it later. The very first thing he says is what? In verse 5, he first says Jesus was the word of life manifested us, that which we've seen, that which we heard, our hands have held. We fully God, fully man. Our fellowship is with the Father and His Son. It's talking about the incarnation of Jesus. He's fully God, fully man. And then he goes, now I write to you that which I heard from Him, Jesus, that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. What's the first thing that John who saw the Lord high and lifted up, is going to say about God, God is light. John, what did Jesus tell you first about God the Father? God is light. 
And in him is no darkness at all. Now, beloved, we tend to, because there's darkness in us, that terrifies us a little bit. No, that's your great hope. That God is light is your great first hope. Why? Two reasons why. Impurity cannot save impurity. You needed purity to save purity. You needed absolute sinless perfection, shining, brilliant light to draw you into itself. You needed God to be light. That's your great hope. Why? Because as he is, you will be. This is great news. I'm going to be light one day. Perfected in glory. Do we have any idea what that means? And the second thing is, what if God had one granule of darkness in him? This world would be a nightmare. God's in a good mood most of the time, but that one day when that one granule of darkness pops up and for one second he has a capricious thought. A non-loving, dark, capricious thought. You know what that translates? You're in hell. You're in hell because the God who knows all things and has all power, just had an evil thought about you. It's Thanos on steroids, people. Do you hear me? That joker lines up. That joker, oh God. God on his throne has one, one granule of darkness thought and the five stones line up and he... It's not 50%. Everybody's gone. Or he just plays with you. Beloved, that's the definition of Satan. But John says he shines like a jasper. (laughs) This is our great hope. God's pure light. Why don't you take one day and just all day long... God is light. Or just cut it short because it's easier just to go light. Light. One of my favorite prayers, fill my eyes with light. Fill my mind with light. Oh, I love it. One of my favorite scenes in all of the movies is when, what is that? What is, what is the, the little hobbit guy's name? The little hobbit. Is it Frodo? Or is it Bill? No, I think it's Frodo when he gets stabbed by one of the, the what are they called? The, the, the kings, the king spirit. What are they called? Rafes? Rafes, yeah, something like that. And it stabs him. And what is the gal? What is her name that likes Aragon? Is it Aragon? Come on, people, don't act. I'm, I, James, you're from New Zealand. Get us straight. Aragon. What is her name? The elf. That gal. My favorite scene is when she pulls out the light. Do you remember that? 
A light heals. A light transforms. Just like it. But God is light. The gospel has to start here, though. It starts with God is light. The next thing that he sees is not only that God's incandescent light, it's that God's light has a red hue to it. Which speaks of his affection, his ardent love. It's not just a pure light. It's a loving light. He not only has moral purity and perfection in every area, he longs for us. Beloved, if someone today famous liked you, <laughs> you'd be like, yeah. <laughs> he likes me. <laughs> the God of all glory desires you. One of my favorite sentences in the whole Bible is where Jesus says, Father, I desire that they be with me where I am. That they behold my glory and they love me like you love me, Father. Isn't it something that God desires? He needs nothing, but he desires something. Right? He doesn't desire you out of need or lack. He desires you out of fullness, which makes it even more precious. Isn't it something that you're desired? It's your great longing. It's your base longing is that someone desire you. Hey, 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 be sad no more. You're desired by the best. The most beautiful. It's his ardent love. He has burning desire for us. And he tells us how it manifested. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, John would say later. What, is, what are the two descriptions of God in 1 John? God is light and God is love. And in this, the love of God was manifested toward us. Not that we loved him, but he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You who've wondered if God loves you, loves you. <laughs> he bled out for you. He can't give you more than his life force. Can you imagine saying that to somebody who saved your life, gave his life for your life, and you go, you could have gave me a little more. <laughs> Not sure if you really love me. <laughs> One of the things the enemy does is he tries to tell you because you hadn't felt it, that it's not real. Whether you feel it or not, he loved you with everything he has. Every time I do a wedding ceremony and they exchange the rings, the great saying is, with all that I have and all that I am, I honor you. To me, that's the exchange. Jesus is on the cross and he's speaking to his future bride. With all that I have and all that I am, I honor you. The ring can't get any more golden or any more beautiful than that. And we just have to look at it and receive it. And the best way that we can honor it is to not argue with it. I relent. You love me. 
You want to feel the love of God and experience it? Pray that for the next year. I relent. You love me. God longs for you with fiery affection. Now I got to speed up because I haven't even got to the point where we need to go at all. The next thing his eyes are drawn to is the emerald rainbow. If God is light and God is love, then the next thing is how does he administrate his kingdom? And the emerald rainbow around his nature, the way he administrates love and light is what? What does the rainbow represent in the Bible? It's the sign of mercy. I will never send a flood on the earth again. How does God handle his light and love? Mercy. Which means he knows his creation is frail. You know what the Bible says about us? You're, you're, you're dust. He knows you're but dust. You're like a flower of the field. You're here today, gone tomorrow. The wind blows over it and you're gone. In fact, it even gets worse than that. One of the scriptures says you're like a flower of the field. You grow up. You pop up from the morning dew and by noon you're dead. <laughs> the noon sun's killed you. <laughs> you're just weak. You're frail. We're just but dust. Therefore... Now, the next sentence should really be important to you. Since you're like this, therefore, he has mercy on the sons of men. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and he relents from doing harm. In Psalm 103, it says he's ever merciful. Therefore, he forgives us of our iniquities. And treats us tenderly and lightly. You should love him for this. Now we got, I've got to move way faster. Now he sees the one seated on the throne. Light. Love. Mercy. Rules in mercy. And from that emanates. That impact on everything else. Light, love and mercy. And now powers breaking out. <laughs> That's awesome. I got a witness. (laughs) Bo is smart. Power's emanating. Not only power, the effect of God in his nature. Power's just emanating. You exert power. God emanates power. What does he say to Job when Job is accusing him? He goes, okay, Job. You, you want me to answer you? Okay, then do one thing. Stir up your beauty And reduce the proud of the earth to nothing. Put on your glory, Job. Shine like I shine. And then break out in power from the shine. I'll answer you if you just do that one thing. (laughs) Lightnings. We could talk a lot about lightnings, thunderings. But it's not just. Power and the impact of power. Now, do you have lightning here in Korea? I mean, I, I just don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. People, I haven't never been in a storm here. Have me longer than three days. I might see a storm. But I've never seen it. But I tell you what, in Kansas City, coming off the plane. Oh, if you want to see, you want to be terrified, fascinated, trembling, stand before a thunderstorm coming off the plains of Kansas 
and a lightning bolt that looks about six feet wide coming down from heaven. Bam! And when the thunder moves across the plain, it feels like it hits you in the chest and knocks you. It's terrifying. Thunder shakes everything. But it's not only lightnings and thunders, it's voices. God's prophetic voice is just It felt like, you know, that voice, the, the, the uh, what is it called? The, the voice of many waters? V- rumblings, voices. That's what it felt like as you were praying for me. I was hearing all these different words and prayers. The point is God's being emanates his words moving out from him with voices. How can he sit in a room like this and speak to every one of you in an individualized way? That's tailor-made voices. Oh, gosh, we don't have (laughs) Then we see the sevenfold spirit of God, who's the administrator of God's power, his lightning, his thunders and voices. Moving around the throne, it's the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, the fear of the Lord. Now, here's what's interesting as we get to where I'm trying to go is now we see the four living creatures. This is not where I'm going, but this sets us up for where I really am going. The four living creatures. Now, everything has either been the throne, the one on the throne and his nature, what it's shining and the voices and lightnings and thunderings. But now in the spirit that is moving around the throne and ministrating those lightnings, thunders and voices. But now we're taken to around the throne. To where these four living creatures each have a face representing all of creation. The lion, the eagle, the ox, the man. And they're standing around the throne. This angelic order representing creation. They look from the outside and they peer. And they're made in such a way. They're designed with eyes within and without. Eyes all over them. In other words, they're the one creature made... To look upon God. To search Him. And after they search Him, they declare to the rest of creation what they see. Now there's two aspects of sight. One is physical sight. They have eyes without. And the other is intuition or the spirit of revelation. Eyes within. So they both see God and they perceive God. At the same time. Now they're designed with hooves. Why do they have hooves? Because this isn't a a, a nice peaceful little place around the throne. John doesn't get called up and it's just serendipitous. Oh, there's God. Oh, he's shining. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yellow moons, green clovers, blue diamonds. I'm kidding. That's lucky charms, people. It's not the Bible. What are you thinking? No, but there, but it's not just like, oh, oh, there's, there's lightnings. There's thunders. 
What are those voices? What are they saying? There's a sevenfold spirit moving around. No, he's on a sea of glass mingled with fire. Thunders and lightnings and voices. He gets called up and it is a hurricane force. Can you imagine God's manifesting his glory? Do you know when God manifests his glory, the new Jerusalem shakes? Which is the dilemma of God. Can he build a building for himself that he doesn't destroy when he manifests his glory? That's God's dilemma. It's his whole dilemma with you. Can he manifest his glory in you without killing you and in your sinful state? No. He's moving you to a resurrected body when the games begin. Because then you'll be the one creature more than the new Jerusalem will be able to house the glory. So he's seeing it. It's winds. It's hurricane force. It's now I grew up in Florida where hurricanes. One of the most fun things to do is to be on the beach when the wind is blowing at a velocity to where you can actually lean into it and hold you up. It's so much fun. You got about an hour to get out of there, but do it for about 10 minutes, then drive as fast as you can. (laughs) It's amazing. It's just the winds. Well, these living creatures, let's get back to the point, which is they have hooves so they can dig into the sea of glass so they don't get blown over. And they dig into it and they have eyes without and eyes within. And they have one purpose to search the depths of God. And they just search him. From all four corners, they're moving. It says in and around the throne, they're moving, looking from different angles because they're the witness givers of what God is like. And they stop, they dig in. And then they look. And at some point, their hard drive fills up and they collapse. The system just shuts down. It's too much revelation. Holy! Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they give the witness to all of creation. And when they do, the elders throw their crowns down and say, yes, he is. And then slowly, God runs the defrag program on the living creatures. And one eye, I just picture it, one eye. Stand up, they move over about two feet. And they do it over and over and over and over and over. But here's the point, not the living creatures. Here's my whole sermon, and it's another one. And we don't have time, but I'll sum it up. We go right from verse 2, the one on the throne, to verse 8, the four living creatures, and we talk about it the whole time. But the living creatures aren't the highlight of Revelation 4. I 
I want you to look at this verse. Verse 4 is actually the highlight. And verse 10 and 11. Around the throne were 24 thrones. Of course, holy, holy, holy is the climax about God, but the four living creatures aren't the climax. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now here's what I want you to to notice about this, a couple things. Nobody else in the throne room is seated but them. Now, I want you to hang here with me. It's going to give three descriptions of them. Number one, they're enthroned. They're seated on thrones. Number two, they're enrobed. And number three, they're crowned. Now, who are these 24 elders? Because you hardly talk about them. You skip right over from the one who shines like Jasper, Sardis, da-da-da-da-da, and then we go right to the thunders and and right to the four living creatures and... We spend all our time on that. But here's what you have to understand. The 24 elders are the representatives of the redeemed. They represent the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles from the new covenant. And you have the whole of redemptive history, all the saints represented with those 24 elders. Now, why is that important? Before there's ever thunders, lightnings, voices... And before the four living creatures are ever introduced, God introduces you to the height of all of creation. Now here's something that will blow you away. They're enthroned with him. Love it, this is, do you know how unique this is? No angels get to sit down around God. You're the one creature. This is God in his pantheon. On display here in Revelation 4. Do you, I don't think you know who you are. Do you know what it means to be made in the image of God? David saw it. He said he made us a little lower than the angels. And he exalted us and crowned us with glory and honor. And made us the ruler over all the works of his hands. Do you have any idea what that means to be made in the image of God? To be the image bearer of God. Bless you. Do you have any idea what? That means that you get to sit on a throne with God. You not only sit on the throne with God. When the four living creatures are declaring holy, 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 you're sitting down. Which means God lets you sit on a throne next to him while he's being praised. By the rest of creation. Do you have any idea what this means? God and his pantheon of gods. Now, Alan, you go, oh, you're crossing the line. You're going into Mormonism here. Pretty soon we're going to be on a planet having spiritual children. No, that's not what I'm saying. Jesus said this when he said, I'm the son of God. They said, how dare you say that? He says, have you never read in Psalm 82 when David said, you are gods, but you will die like mere men? Do you know what that word gods is in Hebrew? He calls men and women gods. Do you know what that Hebrew word is? Elohim. 
You say, Alan, are you saying we're gods? No, but I'm saying you're more than men. You're made from the dust and filled with God's breath. There's no creature like you. You are creation. You will never be God, but you will be more than creation. You will never be what Jesus is by right, but you are it by grace. You are seated on a throne next to God. And more than that, in Christ, you're seated on a throne with Him. Do you have any idea what that means? Do you have any idea what that means for your life right now? No matter how successful or unsuccessful or where you're at in the social order or if you think your life meant something as a mom or a dad or, or marketplace or ministry, whatever you're doing in this life, it is but the internship for your aristocracy in the next life. You're the royal family. You're the royal family. You're the royal family. You're the prince and the princess in training. Everything now is just training. It's just training. It's just training for you to rule and reign with Christ over all things in the next age. But here's what you've got to understand. It's unique. Everybody else is standing up while the four living creatures representing all of creation are praising the Father on the throne and the Father lets you sit next to Him and receive it. What? 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 Angels don't get to sit down next to God while He gets praised? What does this mean? You know what it means? You're the image bearers. You're not just creation reaching to God. You are the ones made in God's nature to shine his government and light and character to all creation. See, your movement goes both ways. You're the only creature that gets to sit and fall down. God makes you hear the praise and receive the honor. And then he lets you voluntarily slip out of your throne and cast your crown on the ground. The living creatures stand the whole time. Everybody else does one thing. Human beings get to sit down, receive honor. Then they get to give it up. Do you have any idea what this means? The privilege, the uniqueness do you know who you are? Do you have any idea who you are? Huh? Do you? <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> Why? You've got this treasure in earthen vessels. You can't see it. But you know what? It says in 1 Peter 1.12, the angels long to look into these weak creatures made of clay who have been given glory and honor. You have any idea? I wish I had time to talk to you about your nobility. In your frame, here you are in the body of death. And even your body of death is so glorious that you can house the third person of the Trinity and take a nap during the sermon. 
You've got the administrator of all of creation dwelling in you and you're just so comfortable. And that's your body of death. (laughs) You know what a statement that is about humanity? No other creature has that. Angels bear the glory of God. You house it. Do you have any idea what you're in? You're enthroned. But you're not just enthroned. You're enrobed. Do you have any idea that you have, you've been enrobed in justification with the righteousness of Christ? In sanctification, you've been given the spirit and you're enrobed with the fruit of the spirit, righteousness, peace and joy, faith, hope and love. You're enrobed. Do you know what? In, gl- in glorification, you're going to be given a resurrected body. And do you know what the Bible says about the resurrected body? I wish I had so much time to teach you on the glory of the resurrected body. Do you know what it says in Daniel 12? That the righteous are going to shine like the stars in all of heaven. Do you know what it says in 1 Corinthians 15? You're sown in weakness. You're raised up in honor. Do you know what it says in 1 John chapter 3? We don't know what Jesus is going to look like when he comes on that day. But how he looks like we will be just like. It says that God will make the Bible and Isaiah says about Jesus when he'll come on that day. Isaiah says that God will make the moon as bright as the sun and the, seven, and the sun seven times brighter. And Isaiah 24 says why God does that. How many, who knows why God makes the moon as bright as the sun at the second coming and the sun seven times brighter? Who knows why? Isaiah 24 tells you why. So that the Lord of glory's light will embarrass them both. What kind of God makes the sun seven times brighter just to put it to shame because his sun shines brighter? Jesus is the light bulb for the whole new Jerusalem. It says there'll be no more night there for the lamb shall be its light. Guess what? When he appears, you will appear with him in glory and you will be just like him. You have any idea? You might hate your body now, which you shouldn't. It's glorious. Repent. It's glorious. But know this, you're getting a serious upgrade. Humanity 2.0. Is not an adequate term. It's humanity as God intended. Shining like the stars in heaven. You have any idea where this is going? You're enthroned. You're enrobed. And you are crowned. You know what it says? Paul says. I have run the race. And I'm going to receive the crown of righteousness. And not only me. But all those who love his appearing. You know you're going to receive the crown of righteousness. You know, it says in 1 Peter 5, for those who are shepherds in the body, it says that when he comes, the good shepherd, and he will give you the crown of glory. Who wants the crown of glory? Hallelujah. You know what else it says? It says that you'll receive the crown of life. Can you imagine? And God does the unthinkable. He lets these enthroned, enrobed, and crowned creatures made in his image, made from the dust, and raised in glory and honor. And he allows these weak creatures who rebelled against him, that the recipients of unmerited, infinite mercy, sit down with him as the aristocracy of the whole age to come. And sit there while he receives the honor due him. 
Everyone else stands in attention. You sit there. And when the four living creatures representing creation give honor, praise, and thanks to God, holy, 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 these one creatures made in his image who bear his early glory, who are enthroned and robed and crowned, they voluntarily go. They're so overwhelmed that the Father has lavished such honor on them. They fall down out of their thrones and they voluntarily bow and they cast their robes and the crowns that the Father had given them, they throw them down and go, yes. Here's the point. You can't bow if you haven't first been in the throne to begin with. What makes their bowing at the climax of chapter 4 is the fact that they had the rightful seat. They reflect the image of God. They had the rightful seat as those made in the image to reflect God to all of creation, to administrate God's government. They had the right to sit there and receive it with God because they are the what? God's proxy. Are God's co-regent. But they're so undone with love of the Father. Though they have the right to sit, they join creation and they bow. And though the Father crowned them with glory and honor, they throw the crowns down. You can't throw a crown down you don't know you have. Do you hear me? (laughs) Does the Father love you? He's enthroned you. Does does the Father like you? He's enrobed you. Does the Father have a purpose for you? He's crowned you. You're the royal family. My gosh. Prince Harry does one little thing, and man, everybody in the world knows about Prince Harry. Who even cares about a British prince? I'm American. I don't even care, but I like it. Who cares? Okay. You chose an American. Good job. That's it. But guess what? We Americans love it. We're like Prince Harry. He's getting married to Meghan Markle. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. And and 30 million of us watch it. Oh, this is amazing. It's a picture. What is it going to be like? When the father of glory parades those made in his image, redeemed by his son's blood and all of heaven is giving witness and they're sitting with him in thrones and robed in white garments, crowned with light and glory. And as the culmination of the wedding of the ages between the lamb and his wife, they do the unthinkable. The thrones they were given, they come out of and bow. The robes they were dressed with, 
and regal garments. They cast them at his feet. And the crowns he put on their heads, they throw them down. Why is that important? That's why our praise is the greatest praise. It's the greatest because we have the right to sit, the right to be enrobed, and the right to be crowned, and we voluntarily, out of love, throw it all down and say, you are worth it all. Here's where I leave you as we go into communion. When you take communion today, take it like the royal family. That's why you can't this. You're the royal if you're being trained for royalty. That's why you can't just live a life of darkness. You're the royal family. When Prince Harry gets off, they kick his rump. They sit him down and go, buddy, you're royal. You're going to hey, get your act together. Come on. You're aristocracy. Do something good. <laughs> when you know who you are, communion tastes a little different. And then you get the nobility of giving all up. We're going to go into communion. The leader's going to come up. But hear me. Revelation 5, where the lamb is revealed, doesn't take place till the elders know who they are and give it all up. What are you saying, Alan? Before the return of the Lord, the church is going to know who she is. She's going to voluntarily give him everything. And when she does, the lamb, the revelation of the lamb and his beauty will go to the ends of the earth and the father will execute his plan and all will be light and love and the nations will stream to the desire of the nations and they will laud him. Father, we thank you and I ask in the name of Jesus everything that hinders the revelation of who we are, that you would break its power and that you would bring us into this understanding. How many of you today, as you take communion, you go, you know what? I want to know I'm enthroned, I'm enrobed, and I'm crowned. Say, Alan, how are you sure? Because I've got dozens of other verses that go along with this chapter that tell me. I want to know how many of you just raise your hand. You go, I want a greater revelation of who I am. I want a greater revelation. So that when I lay it all down, it means. Even more. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Let us fill the throne beneath our seat. Let us feel the dignity of being robed in precious garments of Christ. And let us feel the holiness of being crowned. And then give us the privilege of throwing it all back down to you. You know what's interesting? This scene happens over and over. And the question becomes, how do the elders get the crowns back on their head?
because they throw them down at his feet. And then the scene repeats. I can just picture Jesus getting up. Putting them back on their heads and saying, do it again. My father loves it. Do it again. 